You know how they say some things are timeless? The interview you're about to hear is exactly that, timeless. And I think it deserves another listen. And if you've never heard this interview before, you're in for a real treat. Please enjoy this interview rewind. What did you do? How did you, twice now, we've talked about this, where you had a little bit of imposter syndrome. You were, you were over your head with what you had the experience for. Like, what do you yeah. want to tell people? When you think about it, that's the only way you can grow, right? Unless you're doing things that you haven't done before and don't know you can do, you're not going to grow. So I right. think you fundamentally have to decide in your career, are you willing to put yourself out there and do that? You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. Hey guys, thank you for joining me on Just Our Real Estate. If you are a returning listener, you're awesome. Thank you for coming back. I appreciate it. I'm going to try to continue to bring value to you so you never, never, never stray. If it's a first time listening, welcome. Happy to have you. Uh, hopefully you see that this program is a benefit to you and your business and you stay forever. Uh, but in either case, thank you for showing up today. I appreciate it. I have a good one. And I, I realize I say that a lot, but guys, I don't book people. I don't come up with content. I don't come up with show ideas that I don't think are going to be great. But uh, every once in a while, I feel like there's just a little bit of extra, you know, frosting on the cake. And today is one of those days. And I'm excited. I have a guy who's taken a couple of businesses, like the IPOs, taken them public. A guy who's been in real estate for a long time. He's an MBA guy from Stanford. He's got his his master's from Stanford. He's just an incredible, incredible, like a wellspring of knowledge about real estate business, just what it takes to succeed. And he also happens to be the founder and owner of Roofstock, which we will explain a little bit. But if you don't know what Roofstock is, it is a marketplace for single family rentals where you can either sell a single family rental that you have a tenant and you want to you want to sell this with a tenant in place. Or if you're looking for turnkey properties uh, anywhere around the country, you can log on to this. It is a marketplace for turnkey rental properties, and it is amazing. I am a user of the service, and I, I love it. And I was really, really happy to have Gary agree to be on the show. And I was even more excited when I got to know him a little bit and found out what a great great genuine guy he is and a very, very intelligent guy who is super giving with all of his knowledge. So uh, without any further ado, uh, I, I really can't do any more justice to this episode than if you just listen to it because it's just packed with greatness. So um, take a listen. I hope you love it. I had a great time interviewing Gary. And so without any further ado, here I give you Gary Beasley. Gary, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate your time and I appreciate you coming out and sharing your your background and expertise with us. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited about this. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. So um, you have, you know, I, I I do research on folks that I'm that I'm going to be interviewing, and um, I, I assumed you'd be a guy with an interesting and kind of a cool background, and I was not uh, disappointed. You have a very cool, interesting background, some very impressive credentials, and I really want to give people a sense of 
more of who you are if they just know who you are from like Roofstock. And that's how I you, you're on my radar because I'm a, I'm a consumer. I'm a client. I, I use that product. I love it. Um, but I had no idea what your background was until I dug into it. And it and it really <laughs> I'm even more impressed with you now. Now that I know your background, I'm even more impressed. You're not a guy just stumbled into some idea and he just, you know, got lucky. You you built up to this. This was a process and you brought some folks into your team that were pretty cool. So let's dial backward a little bit before Roofstock, before maybe even real estate. What did you do? You know, like what was your, let's start even go back to your more of a childhood. Like what was it like growing up? Where did you grow up? Cause I, I just happen to know you're a Midwest guy like me. So where, where did you grow up and, and what was that like when you were growing up? Kind of a family we're, environment. Yeah. I, I grew up in a small town in Indiana, Northwest Indiana. I was um, actually born in Gary, ironically. Um, okay. I told I'm not named after the city, but uh, <laughs> I, I was born there. grew up in a, a town called Merrillville and then Portage and a little beach town called Ogden Dunes for high school. So small thing about small town in Indiana, it was a mix of kind of steel country and agri and, and farming, right? And small town. So a uh, large public high school, uh, grew up, um, I, at the time I thought I was sort of middle class. We're probably lower middle class, but um, we were happy, right? Yeah. So um, my, my dad was in real estate, actually. He had a small commercial brokerage business and um that's that's what he did um and uh, you know neither of my parents went to college but they both valued education and supported my brother and i uh, in our educational studies and and i think um my life really changed when i graduated from from high school and went to northwestern for college which was a very different environment for yeah. me um in so many ways. And so they opened my eyes to lots of things. Um, and um, we kind of never looked back from that point, kind of really got interested in economics and finance, business. Is that um, what you majored in in college? Was it? Was I, it I, yeah, liberal arts, but I majored okay. in economics. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. you say that about college. I, I actually, I had a similar background. Parents weren't um, college educated, but they valued it. Uh, I The worst thing in the world happened to me that can happen to someone right out of high school is I got a really good paying job at a very solid company. And I kind of <laughs> thought, college is for chumps, you know? And then that, obviously that yeah. business had a, a struggle and I had to go back. I went to back to college as an adult, but point being, you made the point that college uh, opened up your eyes to possibilities. I think that's one of the greatest things about college is if nothing else, it it expands your 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 horizons. It expands your your viewpoint of what's possible in life. And I think that's it's a good point. It's huge. For those of you who say college is a waste of time, we don't need it. I don't know. It's for everybody. Maybe everyone doesn't need it. But I think going back as an adult, I, I could not believe how narrowly focused, how small thinking my brain was about what I could accomplish. And then I went to college and I was like, you know, so it's a it's a Valid point. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually feel for a lot of kids who are going off to college now. It's yeah. a, really a tough, yeah. tough deal. Um, it will, it will, we'll look back at this period and it's going to be a very odd one um, yeah. in time. But, you know, I've got college age daughters who are both kind of figuring out the online stuff and all that. But yeah, uh, yeah. I feel very fortunate uh, the experience that I had and that, that obviously you had being yeah. able to go back. But I do encourage people to really uh, view college as a, as a time of exploration too, and, and not necessarily uh, as a sort of a practical mm. kind of pre-professional yeah. uh, period. Because I, you know, I do think that, well, I studied economics. I, I 
was a liberal arts student and I, and I think college really teaches you how to think yeah exactly how to process information yeah how to communicate how to write how to make arguments and and I think getting exposed to things that arguably you'll never use again is fine because you you're, you're studying things and your brain is growing and so yeah. that is just is it's a priceless time that you don't appreciate as much yeah. at the time yep and I think people lose sight of some of the the, the benefits of it, aside from the degree and just some of the connections you make, it's that way, that opening up of your mind. And I think almost like working out a muscle that you don't work out prior to college. So very cool. So at, once you graduated from Northwestern, what, what was next? What did you do next? Yeah. So uh, I spent a few years working in Chicago um, for a, a firm called LaSalle Partners. It was a corporate real estate services firm. It's now part of Jones Lang LaSalle, one of the largest kind of corporate real estate services and brokerage firms amazing experience, uh, learned kind of finance and analysis and worked really hard and kind of learned what it was like to sort of, you know, be a bit of a grown up and, and take on some responsibility with some projects and, and, but knew that I wanted to go on the business school. I actually thought I wanted to, um, go beyond real estate, do something else. And so I I went off to business school and ironically ended up back in real estate right after right after business school um which which is funny um but it 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 just worked out that way but i did look look at a bunch of different things and i decided that i really i had a unique opportunity to to go work for a guy um who actually was the founder of LaSalle partners he'd started a new company in santa fe new mexico as a real estate private equity shop and he wanted me to carry his briefcase and help him raise money and get the business going yeah and it was an opportunity to learn and that's another bit of advice I always give people is early in your career, do things for the experience, not the money. Yeah. And I clearly did that. He paid me about half as much as my other offers. But I knew that I was it was going to be a priceless part yeah. of my continued education. And so I, yeah. I did that for a couple of years. And that then uh, led to my next role, which was uh, in the resort business and building on some, some of my skills. They were looking for someone who could run numbers, but also could work on on some deals and do analysis and due diligence and things like that. Okay. And that ended up combining sort of my passion for golf, which is, I always, I was a golfer and continue to love to play golf yeah. um, and travel with kind of finance and real estate. And so I was in the resort business for a while and that was a wonderful way to kind of combine my vocation with my avocation. Yeah. And resorts and, tend to like the golf courses and they also tend to be in really cool, nice places. So that's kind of cool. That is absolutely the case. I, I, you know, had to spend a couple months in Hawaii doing due diligence on a hotel there and all over uh, some great spots. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's so cool. Okay, cool. So you did that. You're obviously getting tons of experience. And and the point, man, I just can't let the point go where you know you said in early on in your career, do things for the experience, not necessarily the money. Could not agree more. I think, boy, I mean. You know, we're in a in instant gratification world, and uh, and I think it's hard for people. In their tw- I have a, a son who's twenty, and he was just given. Uh, he was going through an internship. He's an engineer at U of M. Very smart kid. He's he's never seen anything but an A in his life. He's going into machine learning and and that kind of thing. And uh, he worked for an, uh, his first internship, and they they offered him uh, to pay for his master's. And let him just go to school and not not work. And then when they when he gets done, they they want him to work for them for a few years, obviously. And it's like you know he's starting to like 
get the idea of what it means to, like to to go out there and, and see your value but also he's starting to make those decisions and, and he's 20 and he's like oh I have all these decisions and you know his his mindset is if I screw this up I've ruined my life you know what I mean it's like you really yeah. you really aren't like most no. decisions that you make right now especially the good bad the good problems right like do I go to work for this company or this company they both want me they want to pay for my college and all this it's like you right now you, whatever path you take, you you can pivot. And, and to your point, if you work for someone and you're not making exactly what you want, but the experience is just insane, you you still have time while you're young to take that experience. Don't worry about the money, and then you can take that experience later and make make the money, right? So I, I love it. I, a long winded example, but I, I I love that that point, and I think it's missed on a lot of people. I'm a firm believer too that the the mo- more difficult the decision, the less it matters what you decide. Yeah, because if you really think about it, there's no way of knowing which course is going to ultimately be better. It's a lot. There's a lot of luck involved, and it's a lot of what you make of it. Yep. So yep. Um, it's kind of like a marriage, right? You end up marrying someone you don't know if that's the perfect person, and then you 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 work with it, and it's the same thing with your career. And, and I think people, um, I think a lot of younger people have this fear uh, that that um, you have pointed out of somehow making that wrong decision that yeah. it's irreparable. I 100% agree with you. Uh, you just have to you you pick pick a direction, go and and pivot and um, take yeah. what you've learned from that experience and apply it. Uh, it changes your perspective. It opens different doors than than you might have opened a different way. But there's yeah. you're all moving moving forward hopefully. Yeah, and and unfortunately, I think most people at any stage of life they feel like it's a lot of times they feel like it's too late to do something that they want to do or learn something they want to learn or take a path in their life that they want. I remember when I was in my early thirties, I thought I'm way too old to switch careers. I'm way too old to change, you know, and it's ridiculous. Now that I'm in my late forties, I go, my goodness, was I young in my early thirties? It's ridiculous. And I think people in their twenties sometimes feel that way too, especially if they get started and get married in their twenties. Like, yeah, I got a mortgage and a wife. Like I'm, I'm 28. I can't possibly. Change. It's like no, you can. You can change in your 30s, your 40s. I switched careers 100% in my late 30s. I, you can just totally do it. So, anyways, that's a little bit of a rabbit hole. But so, what what was next for you? I, I understand you went and worked and you for this in this resort. Great golfing, great, great locations. <laughs> what in the world made you change from that in yeah, any capacity? Yeah. So it's interesting. So um, I decided um, we had twins and I was living in, in Palm Desert, California. We didn't want to raise our family there. And um, at the time, uh, the company I was working for, KSL, did not want me to leave and work, do my job remotely. So I knew I had to change. We wanted to move to the Bay Area and I decided to take a flyer. And this was a good example of, I think, sort of betting on yourself a little bit, taking a risk. And I took a job with a startup called Zip Realty as the CFO. Okay. How old were you, Gary, at this point? How old were uh, you? So so that's a good question. So it would have been, um, you know, early 30s. Okay. Uh, So this would have been, let's see, 2000. I moved in 2001. Yeah, so mid-30s. Okay, okay. Uh, And um, so decided that... I didn't know how to be a CFO necessarily, but I knew what this company needed. They needed to kind of fix their business model and raise money. Yeah. And I thought I could do both of those things. And I knew I could hire a great controller to do the accounting stuff because I do did finance, but didn't really know accounting. Uh, it was, a, and it turned out to be a really interesting opportunity because it was a chance to build a company after the internet bubble burst. Yeah. So, which, you know, burst in 2000 and it was in real estate. 
and it was a internet-based model, you know, leveraging the, uh, the internet to bring um, to improve customer experience, drive down costs, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we we're the, yeah. one of the first to put complete MLS online, and, and it was a pretty cool model. And so it turned out to be an amazing life experience. So I was able to help figure out the business model. Yeah. We raised three rounds of venture capital and we went public and I got to take a company public and go through that process as the CFO. And it was a great life and professional experience in, in so many ways. And it, it gave me a lot of confidence too, that I could do something that I didn't know I could do. Yeah. Right? Cause you, say, well, I've never been a CFO and you know, I've never taken a company public, Yeah. but, but what you do is you, you, you lean on experts who can help you um, and you learn and you figure stuff out. And, and you know, that's, it, and I've done that consistently in my career and each time you do it, it, it seems like it reinforces and you're like, yeah, I actually can. Yeah. And that's what, again, advice for people is it, you, a lot of people do have this imposter syndrome that, that don't feel that they could do it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times it's, it's unfounded yeah. and get there if you, if you really work at it. Totally. How often did you, during that process, especially of going public, which you've never done, and I've certainly never done it, so I don't even know. How often did you have that imposter syndrome going on? And how often did you just feel like, what am I doing? Like, I don't, I don't know what's <laughs> happening here. Like, did that happen? Like, I assume a little bit, but you tell yeah. me. No, it, it, it definitely happened. Um, what, what what brought me some comfort is I, I talked to a couple of friends who had been through the process and they both kind of reinforced like nobody, unless you've done this before, of course, it's a bit of a black box. You're not going to yeah. know. Make sure you've got the right, you're surrounded by the right people. Yeah. You have the right lawyers, the right accountants, you have, you know, and all yeah. that kind of stuff and, and embrace the process and, and everything will be okay. Yeah. And, and, and try not to be overwhelmed by the number of decisions that need to be made and really kind of focus on what you can focus on. Yeah. And a lot of stuff actually sort of, you know, a lot of it just sort of comes together naturally. Yeah. Um, so, so, okay. So that, was that, was that Zip Realty? Is that the company we're talking about? Realty, yeah. Okay. And that went, and then once that went public, did you remove yourself? Did you leave or what, how, how did you stop working there? Yeah. So I stayed there for, um, I guess a, a bit over five years. Um, and then in 2007, I decided to, uh, we had been public and I, I wanted to take a little bit of a break. And so at the time I was both CFO and president. I had some operating responsibilities as well. And I don't want to say I was burned out, but I was a little bit burned out having yeah. gone through all that process. And if you recall back then, we'd been through a significant real estate downturn prices had, you know, and we, all yep. that had happened and corrected. And I really wanted to take a step back and I decided to take a year off. And um, I taught a class down at Stanford Business School, which is where I went, and an entrepreneurship class got me really interested in entrepreneurship and, and did some projects for some companies. I ended up doing some consulting for a solar technology company, um, got really kind of excited about it. They ended up hiring me to be their CFO. We raised some venture capital and then they actually made me CEO of that business all within a period of about a year. What was that company <laughs> so called? It's called Green Volts. Okay. And it was a concentrating photovoltaic um, technology. So think about if you've ever seen those trackers that track the sun, Yeah. they use um, very high uh, concentration of electricity in a very um, small amount of land area and it was utility scale. So we had a contract with PG&E Okay. To build a demonstration plant. 
So I knew nothing about solar, nothing about the energy business. <laughs> and I came in and it was that lack of knowledge that was that actually got me hired because since I knew nothing about it, I started with fundamental principles and I built this model that took photons from the sun and translated it into a cost of energy at the, to the end user. Yeah. And I built a financial model and I presented it you know, to the board as, a, as an outsider. And they said, we finally understand our business. <laughs> <laughs> it was all based on just an utter lack of, of knowledge as to how it actually worked. And I said, I think we need to get to this, you know, this, um, this kind of construction cost for our unit, this per watt. Yeah. And, and this is what we need to get to. And we need to get to a certain scale to drive down the cost. And it's just very basic. And they said, this is great. You need to come be our CFO. And so I said, well, I'm not doing anything else. So maybe I'll, and, and that's how I got involved wow. there. So I ended up, it was another one of those things where, you know, the, the imposter syndrome thing mm. could have been a real deal. Um, I was meeting with people from, you know, you know, government agencies and all this and who are really involved in the energy right. world and technologists who are brilliant. And I didn't understand how the technology worked fundamentally, but I understood kind of how it worked generally. And I, yeah. and I again had to rely on the experts and, and you know, had to have engineers and physicists and, you know, presenting these are the different paths we could take and, and make decisions. How, did it ever happen? This would be my fear. This is, this sounds like one of those, uh, one of those nightmares you have where you, you're in this nightmare that you are CFO of a company, you have no clue how it works and you're in a boardroom or in some kind of a meeting and you're, you're just sitting there hoping no one asks you anything. Like that sounds like one of those nightmares you have about school. How, did it ever happen where you were just like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, did you ever have to just say, I don't know, to somebody outside or a consultant or somebody, did you get in that, put in that situation where you're like, holy crap, I don't know what, is anybody's talking about in this room? Um, not that I would, I would uh, occasionally have that feeling, but I would never quite articulate it that way. <laughs> Good. That's why you were the CFO and not me. That's exactly. That's when you, that's when you change the subject and, and then you go figure it out. Exactly. Um, exactly. So what do you but, say to people? If you, so what do you say to people who are maybe putting themselves out there in a position, they're taking risk, they're trying to build a dream and they, they just feel like they're out of their expertise or they're out of their element and, and they're, they're, they're worried about that. Like, what, what, what did you do? How did you, twice now, we've talked about this, where you had a little bit of an imposter syndrome. You're, you're over your head with what you had the experience for. Like, what do you yeah. tell people? So when you think about it, that's the only way you can grow, right? Unless you're doing things that you haven't done before and don't know you can do, you're not going to grow. And so I right. think you fundamentally have to decide in your career, are you willing to put yourself out there and do that? And then um, and it's okay to fail. Hopefully the failures are not catastrophic failures, but sure. that's how you learn and course correct. Sure. And so I think just getting comfortable that you're not going to get everything right and, and being at peace with that, being, being willing to uh, seek help when you don't understand things, yeah. but, but oftentimes you have to do it in the right way, right? Because sure. you, especially if you're in a position of leadership, you don't want to stand up in a, you know, a drafting set and say, I'm really lost. I have no idea what to say. Nobody, but, nobody, nobody follows Spicoli, right? Nobody wants to follow him. But, 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 but what you then do is after that meeting where you're confused, you pull some people aside, you make some phone calls, you do some research and you, yeah. and you figure it out. And so I, I think it's just, you have to be comfortable, um, you know, with that approach. And yeah. then they give you confidence because you do realize that you can figure stuff out. Yeah. And the reality is, Nobody has it all figured out. And yep. that, that is 
it's just something to, to sort of keep in mind. Yeah. And if you always stay where you're comfortable, I, I always tell people, if you stay where you're comfortable, I hope you're comfortable with where you currently are because that's where you'll remain. Right. So to your point, that's how you grow. And I love that answer. It's a good answer. Um, it's almost like, how can you not put yourself in those situations if you have aspirations of more than what you're currently experiencing? So good. So you were there working in, in this industry that you initially knew nothing about. I'm sure you learned a ton. How long were you there? Yeah. Um, so I was there for a couple of years and, but this, this is a good example of, um, also knowing your limitations because in that situation, um, I actually came to the conclusion that the company was trying to do too much, mm. inventing the technology and, and also being a developer. And, and I felt like we needed to pick one course mm. and had identified a merger opportunity with a German company that had a very cool technology and I thought the company should merge. We should use their technology and we should use our, inf our development infrastructure and our contracts yeah. to build, build it out. And the board didn't agree with that. They wanted to continue to develop on our own technology. I, I said, if that's what you want to do, I'm not your guy because I don't believe that this strategy is ultimately going to work. Mm. So let's hire a new CEO. I'll stay as long as we need, as you need me to. And then I'll get that person on board and then I'm going to go do something else. And that's what we did. Okay. I hired a, a new CEO. I went to work uh, for a family office doing private equity, hospitality investing, and um, they continued, you know, with that strategy. Okay. And so, uh, and so, um, it was the right decision for me because I, I just, you also have to ask yourself, you know, when you're on a path, did you feel like this is going to be successful? I think you owe it to yourself if you don't yeah. think you're on the right path to either change that path or go on a different path. So you didn't just stay there, complain for years until you retired about their decisions and how stupid <laughs> they were. You just did. That's perfect. I love that. I, it's something I try to tell my kids all the time. Like you, there's no need, need in complaining about what's happening around. Like just change it, make a decision to change it and go, go in a different direction. I love that. So, uh, I'm hopefully that company is still thriving and doing well, but, uh, uh, I don't know if you have any concept of whether or not their, their plan worked out or, or whether or not they should have no, listened to you. It ultimately did not work out okay. as, as it turns out. And I, um, part, part of it was, was just timing. It, it ended up being a very difficult time to be in the solar technology business with the flat panel technology got super cheap yeah. and so complicated systems that to generate power never got to enough scale to drive the cost down so they could be cost competitive. And a gotcha. lot of the government subsidies went away yeah. um, when we hit the financial crisis. And so it just ended up being a difficult Okay. Yeah, just a difficult situation. All right, guys, sorry for the interruption, but I just want to really quick remind you that Flip Hacking Live this year is on October 15th, 16th, and 17th. It's going to be packed full of amazing real estate investors just dishing, telling you everything that they're doing in their market to be successful, to be profitable, to scale, just all of their secrets and, and tactics and tricks that they're doing to be successful in their market. And because this is a virtual event, now we're going to bring this to you live in your home. You don't have to travel. All of the worries about traveling and COVID and are people going to be wearing masks? Are they going to try to shake my hand? Like, How far are we going to sit apart? All of those fears, if you had them, are gone because we're going to bring it right to your house. So the fact that it's a virtual event, in my opinion, probably means we're going to be able to make this even better. I'm going to be speaking at the event. It's going to be amazing. We're going to send out swag boxes. You're going to get free stuff. It's just going to be awesome. And right now, the tickets are so cheap. They're only $2.97. That price is going to go up. And that's exactly why I'm interrupting this right now to tell you the price is going up soon. Go grab your tickets now. You can go to www.bb.com. 
bestrealestateevent.com. That's a new URL. It's a little easier to remember, and I thought that would be helpful. So go to bestrealestateevent.com. If you go and get your tickets before the end of August, send me proof that you bought them before the end of August. I will enter you in a drawing for me to pay for your ticket. So this thing could even be free. It's a no-brainer, guys. The cost of the ticket is insanely low. It's not going to stay this low. Go grab it now or you will regret it because this is going to be an event like no other. So go grab your ticket. Go to bestrealestateevent.com and I hope to see you there. All right, let's get back to the interview. And then from there, I mentioned I went to go work for a family office. Mm -hmm. Um, It was um, a wonderful experience. We ended up investing in Joie de Vivre Hotels. And while one of the reasons I went to work for a family office was to try my hand at being an investor as opposed to an operator. So I made this investment in Joie de Vivre and uh, Chip Conley, who is the founder and CEO of Joie de Vivre and John Pritzker, who I work for in his family office came to me and said, hey, we'd like you to step in and be CEO of this business that we're just investing in. Yeah. So I immediately went back from, for a short time being an investor, <laughs> now back in the operating hot seat and, um, and Chip and John were the co-chairman and I was the CEO. And so the idea there was to kind of take that company from being a really founder led, almost iconic, Chip's a very iconic hospitality leader and make the company not just about Chip, but make it more of a company that had its kind of its own identity. And so that's, that's okay. what I okay, let, Let's just take one step back. And just for people who've never heard of it, family office, I, I've interviewed a few folks who, who are involved in that. Can you just like layman's terms, what is a family office for people who don't know? Yeah. So uh, the family office is, is when there's um, an individual or family that, that has enough money where they don't just give it to another, give it to Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley to invest it for them they actually invested on their own. And yeah. so they'll hire a staff. So think about a family office. I work for John Pritzker and his family office and uh, the Pritzker family, you know, started Hyatt hotels and, and a number of the, it, there are a number of people in that family who then took that, that money and, and kind of you, you, you build your own business. So it's almost like a little venture capital firm, gotcha. equity firm gotcha. where they, you hired, they hired their own staff. And and take more agency, a little bit more control over how the the money's yeah. invested. Makes sense. Do they do do family offices uh, uh, solicit any any outside funds, or do they do they take outside funds, or is it all self funded usually? Uh, it, typically, the family offices it's just their own family money. But what you what ends up happening is a lot of times they'll co invest with other family offices. Okay, and there are some groups that are all that that will actually bring in money from multiple family offices and they'll they'll put all that money together okay so in a way it's kind of like a fund of funds gotcha idea. gotcha but for the most part family offices they they value that independence and being able to control the types of investments they they do and yeah and the risks they want to take and all that kind of stuff okay Cool. So how long did you do that for? And then what, what came next? Cause I know we're building up to something here. I, I really want to, I'm so excited to talk about Roofstock, but this is yeah, yeah. all we're good stuff. Roofstock. So really what happened was, um, so I did that for uh, you know, a couple years, I think probably close to three years that my whole tenure there. And at the very end, um, we, we um, merged Joie de Vivre with another hotel company uh, called Thompson Hotels out in New York. And um, then I went back to the, to the family office to look at investments again. I, I had been an investor with two of my friends, um, Doug Bryan and Colin Wheel, who had started Waypoint Homes. And they had bought a bunch of homes during the downturn, mm-hmm. starting in about 2009. And I was on their advisory board. 
And they wanted to start, and I helped them raise a little bit of money and put a little bit of my own money to work. They wanted to uh, potentially go big and raise institutional money. And I brought them in to pitch John and the other in, in the family office and said, hey, this could be a very interesting way to get exposure to an interesting asset class. And this yeah. was mid-2011. John said, hey, it looks like a really interesting deal, uh, but I like hotels. I really don't want to do houses. Yeah. And so I decided this would be a really interesting thing for me because it really seemed to me obvious that this was going to become an institutional asset class for lots of reasons. Yep. Back when I was at um, Security Capital in the early 90s, apartments were, were just becoming an institutional asset class. It went from literally $100 million of institutional investment in the REIT world in the, in, you know, the early 90s to $100 billion plus over yeah. the course of couple decades. Single family homes, it's a larger addressable market. There was no institutional ownership and prices had dropped so far to where you could get an incredible yield. And the homes that we were buying were $400,000 homes. We're buying them for $130,000, yeah. you know, renovating them, putting uh, renters in. So it seemed to me a no brainer real estate investment. And then there's this optionality. If we could actually build a platform and attract real institutional capital, we could be at the forefront of something really interesting. Yeah. Fortunately, that's what ended up happening. So I, I joined Doug and Colin. We raised 200 million of, of equity from a private equity firm called GI Partners. We put debt against that and we, we bought about $500 million worth of houses. In and what time frame, Gary? I'm sorry, in what time frame did you buy that amount of houses? A couple of years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so um, what ended up happening was in 2000, 13, we thought about trying to go public and the market was not receptive. It was a little choppy. So we decided we needed to raise some outside money and we ended up partnering with Starwood Capital um, where we essentially merged our management company with Starwood Capital and we formed a, a real estate investment trust. And they, they, brought a, they rolled a bunch of assets in, about a billion dollars worth of assets. And then we ended up taking that entity public in 2014. So that okay. was my second IPO. So I was this, uh, the co-CEO of that business with Doug Bryan, who is my um, partner at Waypoint. And we took that public and grew that. And so um, that was another that was a, another great life experience. It was different taking a public a company public as CEO versus CFO. Okay. When I was CFO, I said, this is crazy. I'm doing all the work. The CEO gets all the recognition and gets all the, all the money. And yeah. then when you're the CEO, you're like, I've got all the responsibility. There's a reason that you know, the buck sort of stops with you. You're yeah. responsible for delivering the results, not just talking about them. And so yeah. then I thought I was, you know, <laughs> doing all the work then. <laughs> but so it all depends on whatever seat you're in. Sure. Perspective is, but, but it was a good, another good life experience. And did ran that for about a year and a half and ended up what I realized about myself is I really like building things. Mm -hmm. And I, I tend to um, like to try to look around corners, see what's happening and, and try to try to take advantage of those trends. And so it felt obvious to me when we were trying to sell some of the homes that we'd owned for a while, that there was a, a need for a marketplace that could help facilitate trades in lease homes. Yeah. So when you think about it, uh, you know, if you wanted to, all the homes we were trying to sell, and we, the, the, it, the expectation was we'd list it on the multiple listing service and then buyers would come and they wouldn't want to buy it because it had a tenant in it. So they'd say, get the tenant out. Yeah. 
And then, and we'd have a lot of brokerage fees. We'd have a lot of downtime and it was just yep. super inefficient and it's bad for the tenant because then sure. they have to go find another place to live. Yep. Then somebody would buy it and then look for another, another resident to rent the house. So, so a very simple idea that we came up with and Gregor Watson, uh, one of my co-founders, it was originally his idea is why don't we just certify the home, the, 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 the resident and the local property manager package this thing up and then yep. allow an investor to buy it really remotely sight unseen, but wrapped with all this kind of diligence yeah. and, and our kind of good housekeeping stamp of approval. And that was the very simple idea. And it's much more efficient. So the entire cost to sell something through our platform varies between one and 3%. If it's a large portfolio, it's 1%. If it's a single home, it's 3%. So a fraction of what it costs in a traditional sure. world, and there's no downtime, things sell quickly. It's less disruptive to the, the residents in the home. Yep. Buyers already are buying cash flow. Sellers, it's quick and easy. We do the diligence up front. So it's just a very simple idea. And so think about this as kind of a parallel infrastructure to the MLS. So the, if you want to sell a home that's vacant to a homeowner, put it on the MLS, hire a yep. broker. Yep. If, you want to, if you have a rental home and you want to sell it efficiently to an investor, sell it through Roofstock. Yeah. And I think one of the beauties, and this is something that I've kind of lamented over the years, being from the Midwest, right? Prices are different in the Midwest than they are in the West and the East Coast. So what I always thought was frustrating. Different meaning a lot lower. A lot lower. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes lower. sometimes yes. people think I'm, I'm screwing around with them when I tell them what I can buy a house for and rent it for. But what frustrated me was in my business, so we find a lot of opportunities and sometimes we sell them off to other investors. Sometimes we keep them in house. But in, Mich in Michigan, this is where I'm from, you know, we might find a house that we buy it for 35, we put 15 into it, and it'll rent for 950. Like in California, they go, come on, nothing. You can't, it's what is it? Oh, an outhouse? It's not an actual house. No, this is a, this is a three bedroom brick ranch in a blue collar neighborhood. And in Michigan, I can make this available to investors and they'll just turn their nose up because, oh, 14% return, eh, I, I need 16 or 18 or 20, and they get real spoiled. I just always thought if I could expose this opportunity to all over the country, people would be eating it up. They would they would trip over themselves to get to it, especially if we're in good neighborhoods and things like that. So that's to me, that's the power for me of Roofstock is I'm I'm involved in it on that end. I I have rentals and and things that for whatever reason I want to liquidate or I want to change something, and I can use Roofstock and I am and have and and successfully close close deals with people who are ecstatic. At what they're getting, but locally it's like, man, it's pedestrian. It's like, yeah, they can, I can get that too. You know, it's not as interesting for them. So it's a, it's a great, great, great thing. And like you said, the, the traditional way of going is, yeah, I'll buy that house, but get the renter out. So it's like, ugh. you guys are the opposite. If I have a property that doesn't have a renter, it's like, mm, put a renter in it. That's what our people expect. And that's what they want. So it's yeah. very cool. And, and it doesn't displace people, right? So that's even great. That's exactly right. I mean, what you're describing is fundamental to what we've done. It's really the idea is we're trying to democratize access to it. So it doesn't matter where you live, yeah. breaking down those geographic barriers to real estate investing so you can do it directly. So our buyers are actually not even just from the country, but from all over the world. They could be looking to buy homes in Michigan. And in, in fact, what <laughs> you would appreciate this. So a couple of years ago, I was on a flight and the guy sitting next to me literally looked at my computer and it was, I was on my, I was on Roofstock. He said, what's that? I said, oh, this is Roofstock. This actually happens to be, you know, my company. It's like, oh, that's really cool. And what's that? And, um, it was a house in Atlanta 
for $106,000. And it was a beautiful brick build, you know, home, two story with a tree. Yeah. He said, oh, is that the down payment on that house? I said, no, man, that's the whole price. So literally uh, this guy bought a house on our flight from the air. He logged on, he started looking at houses and he bought a house and bought a property in Atlanta before we landed. That's and funny. Never heard of Roofstock before. Um, the guy works <laughs> at LinkedIn, and it was it was amazing. But when things like that happen, you know you're kind of onto something yeah. because he's been looking for a property in the Bay Area. You know, to your point, mm-hmm. um, and the homes here were four, five, six hundred thousand dollars that he was looking at as a yeah. rental property, and the yields were not nearly as good. The property, the, the neighborhoods, he didn't love, and he ended up buying, he ended up buying multiple properties because for that same amount, as you know, you could, you could put say 20% down on these homes. So you could buy a hundred thousand dollar home with $20,000. So he ended up buying a bunch of them with about a hundred thousand of equity. And that's, that's the beauty of it. But I I mean, to your, your point, when we open up markets, uh, we have buyers from all over, all of a sudden making offers. They hadn't even thought about, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, yeah. or you know, some of these places that are actually really interesting rental markets and they get exposed to it because their, their search parameters are a certain type of return, certain type yeah. of neighborhood, certain price point. It, it, geography sort of doesn't matter as much. And then you could do all your research, your fundamental research on neighborhoods and things like that. Well, you, like you said, they're already cash flowing. So the, the problem of finding a renter, finding a, a property management company, all that stuff has already been addressed. So they're just buying they're buying cash flow base and, and equity in that in some cases for sure. So tell me about I, this is something cool too. You guys offer some guarantees and some some uniques that other places or nobody else offers, right? So what tell tell talk about some of those if you could. If someone wants, if they go, well, this sounds great. Like I'm in San Francisco and I'd like to buy something for a hundred thousand and rent it out. What, yeah. what what can they expect in terms of like what guarantees do you offer or what assurances do you give people who use your platform? Yeah. Well, I mean, first we advise everybody, of course it's real estate, so there's risk. So you have to, you have to appreciate that there, uh, there are things that could go wrong with any investment. That's how you get sure. equity returns. Sure. That, and so, so we encourage everyone to do their diligence and we provide lots and lots of material. But that being said, when we started the company, um, one of our early investors is Mark Benioff, who's from Salesforce, started Salesforce. And one of his bits of advice very early is when you're building a marketplace, it has to be on a foundation of trust. Got to be trust first, then then growth, then profitability, right? So, but focus on trust. And yeah. so, we didn't know exactly how to do it yet, but we said, okay, well, what would we do to make people trust us? Well, what if you could basically return the home within 30 days and for a full refund? That'd be pretty cool, right? Would anybody ever do that? Sounds crazy. So, we came up with the idea of a 30-day money-back guarantee. So uh, it's almost like, you know, booking your airplane ticket or that hotel room, you know, you could cancel. Yeah. You know, you're probably not going to cancel it, but the fact that, you know, you can yeah. gives you confidence. Yeah. So, so, so that's the, so we did that. So um, there are some limitations on it, but for an individual investor, the typical investor buying a home, if they decide two, three weeks in, they get cold feet or whatever happens, they could essentially call us up and say, Hey, I want to exercise my money back guarantee. And what we'll do is we'll resell the home for free. And if it sells for less, we'll, we'll cover the difference. Okay. So that's the idea. Yeah. Um, it happens very rarely that, but, but it does make give people because sure. they're not seeing these homes and they might not have ever heard of roof stock before they came across our site. Yeah. So it's this idea of 
the perception of that guarantee is is worth a lot more than what it actually costs us. Yeah, and it shows that we're standing behind uh, the service that we're providing. Yeah, um, we also have a lease up guarantee. So most of the homes that you buy on Roofstock already have tenants in them, so you know what the rent is. We do market rent checks and make sure there weren't a bunch of concessions. To, yeah. You know, to have an off market lease or something. Yeah, it's part of the diligence. But sometimes we'll have new product that might be freshly renovated that doesn't have a tenant in it or even a brand new home that's just been built where there's no rental history. So what we'll do is we'll do our work and we'll guarantee that it's, that it's rented within a certain rent band within 45 days. And if it's not, we'll cover a portion of the rent for up to a year. Okay. And it's currently 70% of the rent we'll cover. So you make sure you've got enough to cover your, your mortgage or your expense. And um, again, that's not something that creates, real financial exposure for us, but it does give the individual buyer some protection against that idiosyncratic risk. If for some reason yep. it's longer to rent that home uh, or we've not been great about our underwriting, uh, it, it provides a little bit of a level of comfort there. Yeah. So those are a couple of things that, that we do. That's awesome. And I have actually, I've talked about Roofstock to so many people. I, I'm involved in a mastermind and, and hundreds of people. And I've I've just sung the praises because you guys are great. And it's a service that not enough people know about, honestly. Surprisingly, there's a lot of people who go, I I never heard of them. And when I tell them the concept and show them, they're like, what? I was the same way. When someone showed me for the first time, I found you guys probably 10, eight, 10 months ago. I was like, what? Like, I didn't even know they existed. So since then, I've certainly been a client. So let's talk. You mentioned in one of your past experiences that you guys gobbled up tons of properties back in the the downturn, back in like, I assume it was like 08, 09, 2010, that, that time frame. Yep. What do you see coming on the horizon? And I, I'm not, I don't want to lead the witness here, but I, I've talked to so many people that think that there's going to be uh, a similar downturn, not for the same reasons and maybe not exactly the same, but we're going to see house prices drop soon. What do you what do you see coming in, in your experience and, and what you your feelers out there like what do you think is going to happen and what does that mean for folks who are interested in getting into residential investment? Yeah, it's very difficult, if not uh, impossible, to, to predict yeah. the future, especially totally. because there are so many variables that are un, unknowable. So the, yeah. the only thing I could tell you that I feel with a fair degree of certainty is interest rates will stay low for a long time. Okay. That, that I feel. Um, pretty confident about for lots of reasons. Um, again, uh, not with 100% certainty, but I feel more confident about that than other things. The The housing market is very different today than it was yeah. back then. It, the credit, there was an incred, unprecedented credit bubble that burst. Yeah. And we had an excessive supply of homes and extremely weak demand. And it was sort of this perfect storm, but because what was happening was people were buying homes that really couldn't afford it. And they didn't have enough equity in those homes. And yeah. it just was kind of a perfect storm. Yeah. What you have now is a surprisingly strong housing market. Even now we've been, you know, four or five months into COVID here mm-hmm. and the housing market's on fire. Yeah. It is, it is continuing to happen. And what you have is a real shortage of supply difficulties adding a lot of single family homes yeah. for lots of reasons. The builders are selling more homes now than they ever have. It's kind of record sales for new home builders, low inventories for on the market today. And I think what you have is people really valuing their shelter mm-hmm. more than ever. Yeah. People moving to larger homes because they're going to work from home. Yeah. People moving from apartments into rental homes because they want more space. 
And so we're sort of record occupancies for the rental homes, kind of record demand for primary residences, despite the fact that there's obviously all this weakness in the economy and a lot of jobs have been lost. I'm not yet seeing that directly um, negatively impacting the housing market in a way anywhere close to what we saw last time. Yeah. Um, so will there be, it, you're seeing in some cases home price appreciation slowing and some higher end areas like the Bay Area and New York City being impacted. Yep. But for the most part, throughout most of the country, there's just, there's just not enough houses relative to the demand. Yep. And there's an awful lot of equity in those houses. So the prices could drop quite a bit without triggering defaults or yeah. you know, tr triggering people being upside down right. where that was not the case. And I think that's the fundamental difference. Loans were being made at 98, 99, sometimes 105% of the value of home back, yeah. back in the, the last bubble. Yep. Um, and it was all being pushed by the lenders in the securitization market and all that kind of stuff. And so then prices drop three, four, 5%, they're out of the money. And, yep. um, and you had these floating rate deals and stuff like that. None of that is the case today. So I, I think that the fundamental demand supply equation is different. And so, again, I could be wrong, but I don't see a massive correction like last time. Okay. I see I, I see home price appreciation flattening, and be. Um, but historically, it's been one or two percentage points over inflation mm. yeah. over the long run. But I and I actually, you know, I think there's. It's a different conversation, but I think there's a case to be made that there could be meaningful inflation coming up in the upcoming years. Okay, given, you know the fact that we've been printing a lot of money, and yep. there's, there's lots of uh, things that might point to that. If that's the case, then being in hard assets like real estate tends to be a pretty interesting inflation hedge. Yeah, because you can reset your rents every year. And yeah. how, you know, um, so if we do have a period of inflation that was more like the '70s or '80s, you know, which is you know six, seven, eight percent, not yeah one or two percent which is what we've experienced recently yeah then you might actually see that supporting between the really low interest rates and that it, it could support you know increasing asset values okay fantastic so how does this why should someone listening to this why should they want to to own residential real estate why why is it maybe important for them other than what you just articulated partially. But if I'm looking at doing different things with my money, why would I go into real estate specifically? Well, when you think about all the things you could do with your money, um, you could put in your, in your checking or savings account, which basically earns nothing. Right. You can buy bonds. The, the yields on bonds today are, are quite low in the fixed income world. You put in the stock market, which to me is quite disconnected from the realities of the economy and, and feels fragile and feels like there could be some real volatility there. Yeah. And, and again, I'm, all these things I think people should have exposure to, mm -hmm. but it's just a matter of how you weight them, right? And, yeah. and, and then you look at something like housing, it has elements of fixed income, it has elements of equity. So I like to think about it as sort of like a bond that, is indexed to inflation with an equity kicker. So, but think about that: the bond being the coupon you generate from the rental income. Yep. The the index to inflation is if inflation six percent, I could raise my rent. You know, it's, it, it, you know, so I could. And then at the end of the day, especially if you have leverage, you have this levered exposure to increases in home prices over time. Yep. It gets you that equity kicker. Yep. 
And it's also tax efficient because you could depreciate the assets. So your yield that you're generating is, is more, much more tax efficient than the yield from say some corporate investment or something like that or that investment. So when you, I look at those things and you could generate a, you know, four five, 6% unlevered yield at the, in some cases really higher, much higher, you could lever it and do better than that and get the long-term exposure. And you've got this tax efficiency. Your downside is even if house prices are flat or even down, you're generating this coupon. Yeah. Um, and if over time they go up into the right, what, what we've, what we've seen is, is returns in, in housing have been similar to equity, similar to stocks over the long run, but with much less volatility. Yeah. And, um, and they almost, and they lack really any correlation to the stock market. So if you're worried about the stock market kind of zigzagging, yeah. the nice thing about housing prices is they don't change that rapidly. Yeah. Even during the downturn where prices dropped uh, meaningfully, and they never dropped more than about seven or 8% on average in a, in a year. Yeah. So it's like maybe 1% a month or something like that or less. So you're not going to probably see a 10% price drop overnight like you yeah. can see in the market. So sure. for all of those reasons, I think it's an interesting place for people to think about putting some money in, but, but wanting to have the right investment horizon too. If you only want to be in it for one or two years, the transaction costs are high. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it yeah. um, unless you're a flipper yeah. and you're adding value. But if, sure. but if you want to put money into it, I look at a little bit of a longer horizon and yeah, I think for all those reasons, it's an interesting place for people to have some capital. Yeah, really cool. So before we wrap up here, I, I just, in my research, I, I found an article that you, we were interviewed, I think on housingwire.com, where it says, what is the one thing you cannot live without? I don't know if you remember this, but I'll read it to you. Two things that I can't do without, innovation and technology. So we we talked a little bit. I know I understand how you've been in, in very involved in innovation and technology, but you are, I'm sure, an insanely busy guy. You've been a busy guy. You've worked in capacities where, you, like you said, you even got burned out. How do you stay, what technology, if any, do you use to stay productive, to stay on top of things? To How do you manage your your your, your stuff, your your tasks? How do you manage what you do to, to stay productive? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't know that there's any specific technology that I use that um, keeps me organized. Um, I, I, what I try to do is um, not ever let things pile up too much. And, and because then that's when you really start to feel overwhelmed. Um, what, but I, what I also try to do, interestingly, is have periods of the day where I'm a little bit more technology free, where I could focus on other things. Yeah. Like, like right now for the last hour, I haven't been checking my emails and it's not driving me crazy. I know the world's not going to end. Yeah. But, but um, what I'm finding now is if you're so connected that you're so distracted all the time by, by every time your phone buzzes and things like that, it's hard to be really productive because yeah. you can't really focus. And so what I've really tried to do, especially during these times of COVID when you could be working 24 seven and just constantly multitasking between all these kinds of things is, is, is find time for, to, to not, not answer your phone or check, check emails, yeah. focus on still be able to think exercise, you know, I, I've been, I've gotten back into like mountain biking and stuff since I've, uh, with COVID, I've got more flexibility with my schedule. I try to yeah. do that almost every day. I've started working out again. So finding some 
some positives out of this situation. There's a lot of negatives. Yeah. I miss working with my colleagues, miss being able to do all sorts of stuff yeah. and seeing people. But what can you do to kind of find some joy every day? Yeah. Um, and um, so, so those are things that I encourage people to do. And then, and I try not to get too far behind. So even if it means I spend an hour at the end of the day, you know, have a glass of wine, catch up on all my emails, feel like I got all that put to bed. Yeah. And then I feel like you sort of put a bow on it rather than feeling like I need to respond to everything real time. Yeah. And so it's, it's, I, I guess what I would say is just finding that balance. Yeah. I think it's the, the technology is great um, and it can help us be incredibly efficient, but it could also cause a lot of agita, right? Mm-hmm. It, could, it could make you feel like you're running on this treadmill yeah. and I see my girls and social media and, you know, experiencing yeah. everyone's life and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. In a way, while in many ways a technology guy, I'm also one that says there are limits to how much we should be embracing it sometimes. That's awesome. To to really find happiness. Yeah. I think when it comes to technology, you can always find more technology to be obsessed with and and be concerned with checking every five seconds. But that's good. It's a good, it's a good note. uh, I think to end here on a a technology guy, a guy who spent his whole life basically in some form of technology, uh, telling you to put, put it down once in a while and and go, go bike ride, uh, have a glass of wine. Uh, take your brain out of your phone for a minute. So it's good. I, everyone I think could probably use that from kids to adults. So, um, thank you for that, Gary. Listen, it's been a absolute pleasure. Uh, I, it's always bittersweet because a guy like you, I, I could talk to you for another hour without stopping. There's just a million questions, but, uh, at the end of the day, I want to respect your time and I, I appreciate you agreeing to do this. Uh, guys go check out Roofstock. It is a fantastic platform. I'm not just saying that I've been using it. I know other people who use it on both sides, both as a buyer and a seller. Uh, I'm, primarily on the sell side, just, just my industry. I'm an investor, so I have a lot of opportunities and I, I've been uh, going through your, your site to, to sell those to folks who cannot believe the returns they can get in Michigan. So, um, thank you for, for building the platform. It's, it's it's certainly innovative and it's easy to use and it's, it's great. So, uh, go there and check that out. And again, thank you for your time. I hope uh, you stay very healthy and, uh, keep bike riding and the exercise is great. And, uh, if we get a chance to cross paths again, I look forward to that. If not, uh, have a great rest of your summer uh, here in Michigan. We're looking forward to, to win, not looking forward, but we're looking ahead to winter, not coming up in a few months. I know you're lucky enough to not have to deal too much with that. So uh, congratulations on your choice of, of locations, but uh, have a great rest of your summer and I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks a lot. Really enjoyed it. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Wow. What an amazing guy with a really cool story and a, just a wildly successful and amazing background. Uh, One of the big takeaways though, I think, you know, sometimes it's hard to relate to someone who's had such incredible success and such a uh, ridiculously um, great education and all this stuff. You're like, well, that's not me. I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't get my MBA from Stanford. I didn't take two companies uh, public and all that. That's why in the middle of that, I try to break it down and go, listen, during these times, you were relatively young and you had never done half of the stuff you were doing. In some instances, he didn't even understand the technology of the company, but the idea is, and one of the most important takeaways from this is uh, you don't ever, you, you have to be uncomfortable. You have to take yourself out of your element. Sometimes you have to be in a little over your head to grow. And that's exactly the, the message there. And that's what I think he was trying to say. Uh, and he did say is that, you know, I, I said, how, how do you handle that? And it's like, what do you tell people? Well, that's the only way you grow. That's how you do things. He didn't, he'd never been the CFO of a company that went, went public, but 
he, he went through it and he figured it out and he surrounded himself with the right people. And that's what we do in this business. We figure it out. We surround ourselves with the right people. Uh, so that's the, the takeaway from this, aside from all the wild success and all the cool stories and the roof stock that he built and how great of a platform that is. It's just like you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to go for it and put yourself in situations that you don't have all the answers sometimes and figure it out. So guys, take that knowledge, take that motivation and go out there and do something. Get out of your comfort zone. Get off your couch, get out of your car, whatever. Just stop doing the same old things and expecting something different. It'll never happen. Take this interview, take the inspiration from it and go out and put yourself in a situation where you have to learn and grow. Get out there and make today the best day. I'll see you next time.